ओम नमो भगवते नमस्कार in which bhagavan is talking about knowledge and ignorance in the first three verses he uh, he was talking about or at least to some extent he was talking he was distinguishing knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves from the real knowledge or awareness which is the pure awareness i am which is our real nature um so when he talked about ignorance in the previous three verses the ignorance he was referring to was ignorance of things other than ourselves in this verse also he talks about ignorance but here the ignorance he's talking about is well what he means by ignorance is the false awareness um so what what he says in the false awareness means false awareness of ourselves um not knowing ourselves as we actually are knowing ourselves as something other than what we actually are so what he says in this um in the first sentence of this verse is jnana mam tane me jnana means um knowledge or in this context it means awareness it's this is referring to the pure awareness that we actually are uh jnanam am means which is or who is tane means oneself alone and me means real so this sentence means one self who is awareness alone is real and as i say the awareness he's referring to here is the pure awareness the awareness but is not aware of anything other than itself um then in the next sentence he says jnana uh, nana vam jnanam ajnanam um knowledge or awareness that is manifold is ignorance that is uh, we we alone are what is real so awareness of ourself alone is real awareness awareness of other things is not real awareness because nothing other than ourselves is real all other things are a mere appearance so being aware of what is not real what doesn't real here means what actually exists uh, unreal means what doesn't actually exist even if it seems to exist so when we are aware of anything other than ourselves we are aware of things that are not real but things that do not actually exist so that is not real awareness that is ignorance um so uh what this sentence means is nana means um many or manifold or diverse um again means which is uh, nyanam means awareness um so it literally means awareness which is many uh however um the what he means by uh, knowledge which is many is um is uh um knowledge of multiplicity knowledge knowledge of many things that is when we are aware of many things our awareness is seemingly divided as many things that is we we are we have awareness of a and of b and of c and of d of multiplicity um there is actually an earlier version of this verse that is bhagavan wrote this verse 
on the 30th of July, 1928, while he was composing Uludunapadu, and he first composed this verse in a different form, and then he modified it. So that um, what he said in the older version of this verse, which is verse 12 in Upadesha Tanipakal, a collection of uh, miscellaneous verses of Upadesha, um, what he said was, uh, in the first sentence, Nyanam Andre Unme, uh, that means awareness alone is real. He, that's why he modified this later to say, a, a, oneself who is awareness alone is real. And then in the next sentence, he began saying, Nana Vai Khan Kindra Nyanam, that is the awareness that seizes many. So what he means in this uh, verse 13 of Uludunapdu, when he says Nana Vam Nyanam, is the Nyana that sees the one thing that actually exists, namely ourself, as many things. So be seeing the one as many, that is ignorance. Um, the rest of the verse, it's slightly different than the original form, but he's actually, Bhagavan has packed more into this um into this version, that's why he rewrote it. But it's that earlier version gives us a clearer insight into what he means by nana vamyanam. It means the, the awareness that sees as many. The implication is the awareness that sees the one thing that is real, namely oneself, as many things. Um, because though we see the, the seeming existence of many things, those many things have no existence independent of ourself. It is ourself we are seeing as all these things. Just like when we're dreaming, the dreaming mind is seeing itself as the, as the dream world, consisting of so many different uh, objects of phenomena and events and so on. And um, so, nanavam uh, basically it means awareness of multiplicity, is ignorance. So knowing anything other than ourselves is ignorance, is what Bhagavan is saying here. It's a very, very important idea. But then he goes on to, um, he goes a bit deeper into this. What he says in the next sentence is, Poyam Agnyaname, Nyanamam Tanne Andri Indru. What that means is, even ignorance, that means ignorance that is the uh, awareness of multiplicity, even ignorance, which is unreal, poi means unreal, um, is the opposite of may, which means real, poiam, which means, so ignorance which is real, even ignorance which is real, does not exist, indru means does not exist, andri, except, or other than, or independent of, set, uh, besides oneself, who is uh, jnana. So the one thing that actually exists is only ourself. But exist, the awareness of multiplicity has no existence independent of that one thing that actually exists, namely ourself, who are jnana. And then to illustrate this, he gives uh, an, uh, an analogy. What he says in the next sentence is, anigal tam palabam poi. That means all the many ornaments are unreal. Mayam ponne andri undo. Do they exist except as gold, uh, which is real? Or do they exist besides gold, which is real? That is, 
in this analogy, gold is the substance. The, the ornaments are just forms. Those forms have no existence independ independent of, of the substance. If you've got um, a number of gold ornaments, uh, supposing you've got rings and bangles and necklaces and um, gold, gold anklets and, um, and tiaras and crowns and so many different gold ornaments you have, if you take away the gold, those ornaments don't exist. They have no, they borrow their, the ornaments borrow their semi existence from the substance, which is gold. So forms borrow their semi existence from the substance. You can't have a form without a substance. So uh, according to Bhagavan, the, the forms are unreal. That's why he says all the many ornaments are unreal. Do they exist except as gold, which is real? Obviously, gold is not real in the absolute sense, but for the purpose of this analogy, it's gold that actually exists. The forms have no existence, though the forms seem to exist, they have no existence independent of the gold. In the same way, what actually exists is only our self, who are pure awareness. The, um, the awareness of many things is like the they're different ornaments. It's like they're different forms, but the underlying substance is um, is gold. There are two analogies often used in um, in Advaitic texts. Um, one is this gold and ornament analogy. Another another parallel analogy is mud and pots, and. Um, According to Advaita, what is real is only the substance. So in the case of the, the mud pot, like as in the case of the gold ornament, what is real is the mud, the clay of which the pots are made. The pots are just to form. Before the pot was formed, it was clay. When it is formed, it is still clay. If a, a pot is broken, it is still clay. The substance remains the same. The form is just a temporary appearance. Um, you know, in a sense, this um, this gold ornament uh, uh, analogy is, though, though the mud pot analogy is more frequently used, there's a problem with the mud pot. But if, if you take clay, form it into a pot, and to actually uh, retain its form as a pot, you then have to bake it. Once it's baked, the clay is no longer, the clay changes its substance. But so this gold analogy is a very, is in a way more apt because the gold never changes. When you make an ornament, the gold remains the same. It's not going under, the only change is a change in form, a change in appearance, the substance remains the same. Um, but to understand either of these analogies, that is no analogy can perfectly illustrate what is intended to be illustrated. So we should, there are a number of other analogies used in Advaita philosophy. The, probably the most uh, well-known one is the snake rope analogy. So we have to understand this gold ornament analogy or the, uh, or the mud and pot analogy in terms of the um, snake rope analogy. In the case of, this, uh, of the rope that seems to be a snake, what actually exists is only a rope. 
just as what actually exists is only the gold or only the mud. But snake is a mere appearance. Even, even when it seems to be a snake, there's actually no snake there at all. So this analogy is important to illustrate that um, but, uh, this, this analogy, the snake rope analogy, illustrates why Bhagavan says here, the many ornaments are unreal. Uh, because their, or their ornaments are like the snake. They're a mere appearance. They don't actually exist. Because these analogies are used in Advaita. The fundamental principle of Advaita is, in uh, the Upanishads, it's, it's expressed as ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. That is Brahman, or our own real nature, is one only without a second. That is the meaning of Advaita. Advaita means not to, not, uh, non-tunis. There's no second thing. So one only without a second. If, if, they, if the truth is that there's one only without a second, then that seems to contradict our experience. Because in our experience, there are so many things. There are so many objects in this world. There are so many thoughts and feelings and emotions and so on in our mind. This world is full of multiplicity. So how can it be said that there's only one thing without a second when our experience tells us there are so many things? Uh, so when our experience tells us very many things, how is Advaita justified in saying there's only one thing without a second? The answer gi given by Advaita is multiplicity is just an appearance. All the many things do not actually exist. Just like a, a rope that seems to be a snake, what actually exists is only the rope. There's no s snake there at all. Um, the snake is a mere appearance. Likewise, all the uh, many objects, the, the many phenomena that make up this, um, make up our experience, our awareness of multiplicity, in other words, is just an appearance. It is not real. That is why Bhagavan says it is ignorant and that that ignorance is unreal. So we have to, in this verse, we have to pay close attention to every word Bhagavan uses because. It's, this is a very, very important principle Bhagavan is teaching us in this verse. Multiplicity is, is unreal. Because multiplicity is unreal, awareness of multiplicity is ignorance. It's not real awareness. Um, so this is why Bhagavan, just like the, the snake is unreal, the, what is real is the rope. In this snake rope analogy, Bhagavan is clarifying when this analogy is used, we need to understand that the ornaments are as unreal as the snake. They're a mere appearance. What actually exists there is only the gold. Gold is the substance. So the, the ornaments borrow their semi-existence from the gold. In other words, the forms borrow their semi-existence from the underlying substance. The snake borrows its semi-existence from the rope. What actually exists is a rope. So the snake borrows its semi-existence from the snake. But mud pots borrow their semi-existence from the clay of which they're made. Without the clay, there's no such thing as a clay pot. Um, so this is very, very important to understand. People who are opposed to Advaita try to twist these analogies. So um, in, there's a book 
called Satdarshan Bashir. Satdarshan Bashir, I'll just tell a little bit of history behind this book because just to give, put it in context. That is, Bhagavan wrote Uludunapadu in Tamil. Shortly after he had composed Uludunapadu, a devotee who had only recently come to Bhagavan was a person called Lakshman Sharma. He's best known in, uh, to, among English-speaking devotees as Hu, the author of um, Mahayoga. He also wrote in Tamil a Tamil commentary on Uludunapadu, but that was much later. So when he first came to Bhagavan, that was at about the time Bhagavan had written Uludunapadu. So one day Bhagavan asked him, have you read Uludunapadu? Lakshman Sharma was a Tamilian. But in those days, under the British rule, the education policy was that in schools, the first language that should be taught is English. And then the, uh, uh, each child could choose either to study one other language. Either they could study Sanskrit or they could study their mother tongue. So in Tamil Nadu, that meant they had a choice either of studying Tamil or studying Sanskrit. As a general rule, um, the Brahmins tend, most Brahmins tended to study, uh, opt to study Sanskrit, whereas most non-Brahmins opted to study um, Tamil. This is one of the ways in which the British uh, policy, the means by which they ruled a few thousand British um, people managed to rule over such a vast country of such a huge population was by divide and rule. They kept on trying to, to, uh, to divide the population so that each is opposed to the other and therefore they can rule over them. So this was part of their divide and rule policy. Prior to the, this education policy, which was brought in by the British in the early part of the 19th century, any educated Tamilian would study both Sanskrit and Tamil. So they'd be well-versed in Tamil and also well-versed in Sanskrit. But after this policy was introduced, those who knew Sanskrit well generally didn't know Tamil well. And those who knew Tamil well generally didn't know Sanskrit well. And this also created a, that heightened the division between castes because most Brahmins would opt to study Sanskrit and most non-Brahmins would opt to study um, Tamil. There were exceptions, of course. For example, Murugana, though he was a Brahmin, he had so much love for, Sans for Tamil, he opted to study Sanskrit. Uh, sorry, he opted to study Tamil and he became a great Tamil scholar and poet. He also knew Sanskrit, but that wasn't his main uh, subject. His main subject was Tamil. So Lakshman Sharma was one of the, the, the many uh, uh, Tamil Brahmins who had at school had opted to study Sanskrit and therefore didn't have a deep knowledge. Of course, he spoke Tamil, but the literary Tamil is quite different to spoken Tamil. So he wasn't, he wasn't um, so familiar with literary Tamil. So for him to understand Uludunapadu was very difficult, although it's written in Tamil, his mother tongue, because it's written in a very literary style of Tamil, he it, it he wasn't he couldn't easily understand it. So um, when Bhagavan asked him, "Have you studied uh, uh, Uludunapadu?" He said, "No, I, I'm I'm a Sanskrit student, so I'm not. It's difficult for me to understand the Tamil." Um, but then he thought to himself, 
but when Bhagavan asked me this question, this is a very good opportunity. So then he said, but I would like to study um, Uludunapadu if Bhagavan would be kind enough to teach me. So Bhagavan began to explain to him the meaning of the verses. And because Lakshman Sharma had a love for Sanskrit, and because he was a he was a moderately competent poet in Sanskrit. He he uh, he wanted to uh, uh, to to um, when Bhagavan explained him the meaning of each verse. He wanted to write it in Tamil verse form. But first, he asked Bhagavan to, to. He said to Bhagavan, "Bhagavan, why don't you translate this into Sanskrit?" And since Bhagavan had told him a story about the, this um, how. Kaviyaganta was unable to compose, uh, in Tamil there's a particular meter, the meter in which Uludunapadu is written is called Vemba. This is a, a very, um, in, 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 among Tamil poets, if a poet cannot compose Vembas, they're not considered a poet at all. The basic qualification of a poet is, is the ability to compose a Vemba. It's actually quite a difficult meter for those who are unfamiliar with it, those who are familiar with it, I mean, for those who, who are natural poets, it comes second nature to compose Vembas. So once many years earlier, Paviyaganta, Ganpati Sastri, had, in the presence of Bhagavan, he was talking about the greatness of Sanskrit poetry. And he was, say, he was saying there's no poetry in the world that compares with Sanskrit poetry. So, in order to, um, to subdue his pride, Bhagavan said, in Tamil, in Tamil we have a meter called Vemba, which is a very, um, a very basic, I mean, it's considered the, the, the basic, if any poet who is a real poet will be able to compose Vembas. So do you have any um, meter like this in Sanskrit? And Kaviganta asked Bhagavan to explain this meter. And when he explained the rules, it's actually it's got it's far more complex rules than the rules of most Sanskrit uh, meters. So um, then Bhagavan said to him, why don't you compose a verse in Sanskrit in Vemba meter? And Kaviyaganta tried. He wasn't able to do so. Every time he tried, it was coming out wrong. Bhagavan was pointing out. Then Bhagavan said, OK, if you're not able to compose in Sanskrit, why don't you try in Telugu, your mother tongue? And he tried in Telugu, he wasn't also able to compose uh, any um, Vember in, um, in Telugu. So this was a story Bhagavan often used to tell. So he had mentioned this to, um, to Lakshman Sharma. So Lakshman Sharma asked Bhagavan to translate Uludunapadu um, into Sanskrit in Vember meter. And Bhagavan said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not a Sanskrit student like you. You can do better than me. You compose. And then Lakshman Sharma said, if, if even Kaviyaganta couldn't compose a, a Vemba in um, Sanskrit, how can I do so? And then Bhagavan explained to him the rules. And Lakshman Sharma tried, but he couldn't. Then Bhagavan uh, translated the first verse, the Mangalam verse of Uludunapadu, he translated it into Sanskrit in a Vemba meter. That is the only Vemba meter, the only Sanskrit verse in Vemba meter, as far as I'm aware. So Bhagavan just illustrated that it is possible to compose uh, Sanskrit verses in this Tamil meter. And later, many years later, 
This is, I mean, Ulu Nabdu was written in 1928. In about 1948 or so, once when Bhagavan told this story about how Kaviyaganta wasn't able to compose, uh, even in Telugu, and uh, Suri Nagama asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, when, why don't you compose a, a Telugu verse in, in Venvamita? And Bhagavan said, oh, that's not necessary. Um, but somehow she, he, um, because she had prompted him, somehow it came to him to write one verse in Telugu. And um, then after writing one, he wrote another one. And in the end, he wrote five verses in Telugu. And he immediately translated them into Tamil. Both the Telugu verses and the Tamil verses were in Venvamita. This is the work Ekamma Panchakam. So this is how Bhagavan came to compose Ekamma Panchakam. Sorry, this is all a bit of a, um, not, not directly relevant to what I'm saying, but there's a, a, I'm just putting it in, in context. So, uh, Bhagavan translated only one verse of Uludunapadu into Sanskrit. Since that meter was too difficult for Lakshman Sharma, he tried in several other meters. So he composed, um, he, comp he made several attempts in different meters to uh, translate Uludunapadu into Sanskrit. And every time he, he, he tried, he would submit it to Bhagavan, Bhagavan would correct his verses, but then he would feel he can do better, so he would try in some other meter. So this was going on for, for some time, several months this was going on. While this was going on, Papali Sastri, who was a disciple of Kaviyaganta, Kaviyaganta had by this time left uh, Tiruvannamalai, and he was living in a place called um, if I remember correctly, CSC in Karnataka. He he never returned after about 19, he left in about 1928 or 29. After that, he never returned. Um, so, uh, and Kapali Sastri by that time had become a disciple of uh, Aurobindo and the French mother in Pondicherry. So, at one time when Kapali Sastri was going to visit um, Kaviyaganta in CSC, he passed through Tiruvannamalai for a few, and we intended to spend a few days there and then go on to Sesi. While he was there, he was told by others that um, this, per this new person called uh, Lakshman Sharma, he's written a Sanskrit translation of Uludunapadu. So Kapali Sastri asked if he could see it. And he looked at it and he saw it's, 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 moderately good Tamil uh, Sanskrit poetry, but it's not such high standard. So he then said, uh, could I take a copy of this and show this to Kabiaganta? So he took a copy. So uh, um, Bhagavan told Lakman Sharma, so Lakman Sharma made a copy of it and gave it to him and he took it to Kabiaganta. A few weeks later, um, uh, Kaviyaganta sent a letter to Bhagavan along with a new translation of Uludunapadu. And, and the title that Bhagavan and Lakshman Sharma had given to Lakshman Sharma's translation was Satdarshana. So Kaviyaganta took that title, Satdarshana, for his own translation and wrote a completely fresh translation. And he wrote to Bhagavan saying, perceiving the restrictions in my hands, to correct the version of um, of uh, of Lakshman Sharma, of, um, 
I decided to make my own translation because though he Kavigant could speak Tamil, he didn't know literary Tamil, but Vishwanatha Swami was there with him in CSE. So with the help of Vishwanatha Swami, and Kapali Sashri also knew some Tamil. So with their help, he he made this translation. But and he sent this along with this letter, and he said him a letter. Please ask the ashram manager not to print this until Kapali has finished his uh, commentary. So when Lakshman Sharma saw the um, Sanskrit uh, translation of Kavyaganta, it's written in very beautiful Sanskrit verses. So he said to Bhagavan, oh, this is very nice. This is much better than anything I could do. I will take this for my Parayana. And then Bhagavan at once objected and said no. Uh, start to make a fresh translation in a longer meter. And he, he was a bit puzzled by that. Then Bhagavan pointed out how <coughs> many important ideas in Uludunapadu had either been omitted in Sanskrit, in this, in Kamiganta's version, or they have been twisted and to give a different meaning. So, and Bhagavan told him, they did this because they hated Dvaita like poison. Um, and Bhagavan pointed out examples. One example was this verse. When Kavyaganta translated this verse, Bhagavan uses the word poi, unreal, um, twice in this verse. In the, in the third sentence, he says the ornament, the ignorance is unreal. And in the fourth sentence, he said the ornaments are unreal. In the Sanskrit verse, they completely omit this word unreal. There's no, that word unreal has not been translated. That gave room for Kapali Sastri to interpret this verse in a completely different way. In his um, introduction to Satdarshana, he discusses this pot um, play analogy, and he says, in order to understand the full truth of the plot, pot, you need to understand both the substance and the form. If you understand only the substance, that's only a partial knowledge. If you understand only the form, that's a partial knowledge. To have complete knowledge, you need to know both the substance and the form. And that's what he argued using that analogy. And he says, likewise, in order to understand Brahman, you have to understand both the substance and the form. The form of Brahman is the world. The substance is Brahman. That was his argument. And he he even goes so far as to say, I'm just reading, this is the, um, the, the book, the Satdarshan Bashiya. Here on page six in this edition, this is a, it's an old edition from 19, I think, yeah, 1975. On page six of this edition, he says, after explaining this, his interpretation of this um, snake, of this uh, uh, clay and pot analogy, he says, he concludes, it is evident then that it is both false and futile to affirm that the substantial truth alone of the world being, Brahman, is real, and that the formal aspect of Brahman as the world is unreal. So he's saying here, but what Bhagavan has taught is false and futile. Because Bhagavan is asserting here, Bhagavan clearly implies when he says knowledge of multiplicity is ignorance and ignorance is unreal, the implication is, but multiplicity is unreal. Because as he says in the first sentence, 
oneself who is jnana alone is real. That means no other thing is real. So they, they, this is how the, those who are opposed to Advaita, they twist these analogies. This is why I said we need to understand these analogies together. We need the clay and pot analogy, the golden ornament analogy, and the snake and rope analogy. We need to understand all these together. What is real is the underlying substance. The, it, in the case of, the, of the, the, the snake and rope, the rope is the uh, reality, the snake is a mere appearance. Likewise with the ornaments, the gold is real, the forms, the ornaments are unreal. In the case of a clay and pot, the clay is real, the substance is real, the form, the pot, is unreal. Um, so, but to make that absolutely clear, Bhagavan added these words, unreal. He said, ignorance is unreal, and the many ornaments are unreal. So the implication is, but multiplicity is unreal. Why? Because the truth is, ekam eva advaitiam. There is one only without a second. And what is that one? Tatvamasi, you are that. So we ourselves. Of uh, the one thing that is real. That's why he says here, jnana mam tane me. Um, he says a similar thing in in other words in uh, in nana in the um, in the seventh paragraph of nana he says yatatamai ulladu atma sarupamondre. That means what actually exists is only atma sarupa. Atma sarupa means the real nature of ourself. The real nature of ourself is what he refers to here as jnanamam tane, oneself alone, who is awareness. So that alone is real. That alone is what actually exists. Multiplicity is unreal. That means it doesn't actually exist, even though it seems to exist. So this is a very, very, it's very important to understand why Bhagavan says this, because Sometimes people used to ask Bhagavan, Bhagavan, why is it? Why do you put so much emphasis on the fact that this world appearance is unreal? Bhagavan said, because so long as you take it to be real, your mind will always be after it. If you're seeking the reality and the reality alone, you have no option but to accept. But this, all this appearance is unreal. What is real is only one, and you are that. That is the That is what a dvaita is all about. So understanding this this verse clearly is very very important. When he says, I'm going to go back to dealing with the verse now. In the first sentence, when he says, "oneself who is awareness," he's what he means by oneself is our real nature. What we actually are is just pure awareness. And in the Kali Vemba version of this verse, he added one uh, word here. Um, that is before the uh, the first word of the verse, which is jnanam. He said he added the uh, uh, a, a relative clause or adjectival clause, seribaya. That means seribu means what is dense or abundant or full or firm. It in, in this context it implies clear, and um, aya means which is so. Uh, that oneself, who is uh, awareness, jnana, 
which is um which is uh which is very dense abundant clear full or firm um so he what Bhagavan is, what we actually are is that clear awareness of our own existence i am the, the one thing that is clearer than any other thing is our own existence as murugana points out in the um in the anupalavi the the a post refrain of um of uh of uh anmabide what murugana says there what uh, that is the implication is but oneself is so very real even to the most ignorant person but in comparison even the amalaka fruit on the palm is uh, uh, seems uh, becomes uh, is less certain that is if you want to say that something is very clear and very certain the analogy that is often used in indian languages is an amalaka fruit on the palm in Tamil, it said Ulankai uh, Nelikani. Ulankai means the palm, Nelikani means an Amalaka fruit. So, if you've got an Amalaka fruit, is, um, you may be familiar with the word Amla. Amla it's, uh, occurs in many medicines. It says it's a small fruit about the size of a grape with a, uh, a stone in it. It's very high in vitamin C and it's got various medicinal properties. Um, so if you've got an amla on a fruit on your palm you can't doubt its existence it's so clear <clears throat> but according to murugana even that is open to doubt because the, the amlaka fruit in my palm if i'm dreaming then my palm and the amlaka fruit are all part of a dream so if all this is a dream even that is unreal what if but the one thing that is indubitably real the one thing that we know more clearly than any other thing it's our own existence, I am. So that's why Murugana says oneself, Atma, is the one thing that is absolutely certain. And <clears throat> Murugana said that in the, in the Anupalavi, the post-refrain, in the first verse of, uh, of, um, of, uh, of Anma Bide, Bhagavan then takes up that and he begins from that point, saying that though oneself alone is real, the world and the um the body and world sprout as if real so all the multiplicity though it seems to be real it is not actually real what is real is only this fundamental awareness i am in other words ourselves we alone are what is real that is what bhagavan is emphasizing here since we alone are what is real and as i said may real here means what actually exists we alone are what actually exists so but but since we alone actually exist being aware of many other things is not real knowledge it's only ignorance because um bhagavan said it in the um in an earlier verse of Uludun Apadu, um in, in verse 11 he said uh arivurum tanne ariyadu ayale arivadu ariyame andri arivo that means not knowing oneself who knows knowing other things is ignorance so knowing anything other than ourselves is ignorance if we know ourselves then there'll be nothing else to know why is that because what knows um that uh, sorry i'll just finish translating then he says andri aribo besides is it knowledge the implication is 
knowing knowing anything other than ourself is only ignorance. It is not knowledge. Uh, it's an emphatic way of saying it. Um, and then he says, when one knows oneself, the support for knowledge and ignorance, knowledge and ignorance will cease. Why is that? We know uh, other things only so long as we rise as ego. When we don't rise as ego, as in sleep, we're not aware of anything other than ourselves. When we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be a form, and consequently we are aware of a multiplicity of other forms. When we don't rise as ego, we remain as that pure awareness, Nyanamam Tan, uh, oneself who is, uh, who is, uh, who is uh, Nyana, as jnana, the pure awareness, we don't know anything other than ourselves. Pure awareness is called pure awareness, Suddha Chaitanya, because it's awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. In other words, it's awareness devoid of content, devoid of objects. It is just pure awareness. What knows other things is not ourself as we actually are, but only ourself as ego. So since ego is unreal, all that it knows is unreal. So knowing multiplicity is not knowledge, it is only ignorance. That is, the, that is the, what Bhagavan is saying both in verse 11 and in verse 13. But if this knowledge of multiplicity is only ignorance, is this ignorance real or unreal? Ignorance is unreal, but though it's unreal, it doesn't exist independent of the real awareness. That is, we... We, we couldn't be aware of multiplicity if we were not aware. We must be aware in order to be aware of many things. So the, the pure awareness is the, is the mere awareness. The awareness of anything, that is ignorance. So we need to distinguish. Bhagavan used two terms in Tamil to distinguish the awareness, the, the pure awareness from the awareness of other things. The pure awareness well, awareness of other things, he used to call uh, uh, suttarivu. Suttu means what is showing or pointing. So the showing or pointing awareness, that implies the awareness but is aware of things other than itself. In other words, the awareness that shows up all this, but displays this multiplicity. Um, in English, I usually express that as, as a transitive awareness. Transitive means it has objects. It's awareness that is with objects. Like a, a transitive verb is a verb that takes an object. An intransitive verb is a verb that doesn't take an object. Um, in, in, in cricket, for example, in cricket you, you hit a ball. The, the verb to hit has to have an object. You can't hit without hitting something. So the, the verb hit is a... Um, is a a transitive verb because it takes an object. Having hit the ball, then the person who hits the ball with the bat has to run to the other wicket. So running is an intransitive verb because you can't run something. There's no object of running. You just run. You can't say, oh, what did he run? That makes no sense because it's an intransitive. You can ask, what did he hit? He hit a ball. What did he run? makes no sense at all because it's a, that's an intransitive verb. So we, using these terms 
transitive and intransitive and applying them to awareness, transitive awareness is awareness of things. In other words, what Bhagavan refers to here is nanavamyanam, uh, awareness of multiplicity, because they are ob in awareness of multiplicity, there's a subject, namely ego, and objects, namely all the things that it's aware of. That is transitive awareness, or what Bhagavan calls suttaribhu. He also used the term sotatraribhu, that means awareness that is devoid of pointing, that means intransitive awareness, awareness for which there is no object. So what is, in order to be aware of anything, you have to be aware. But in order to be aware, you don't have to be aware of anything. In waking and dream, we're aware of so many things. In sleep, we're not aware of anything, but we're still aware. Because if we weren't aware in sleep, we wouldn't know if we were ever in a state in which we're not aware of anything. Awareness of things is transitive awareness. Um, uh, the pure awareness is awareness that is just awareness. It's not awareness of anything. So when Bhagavan says jnana mam tane me, what he means by jnana there is the pure awareness, the sutatraribhu, the awareness that is not aware of anything, but it's just pure awareness. That is what is real, because the awareness of things comes and goes. In when we rise as ego, we're aware of other things. In, so in waking and dream, we're aware of other things. In sleep, we're not aware of any other thing. But in all three states, we are aware. So the real awareness is not awareness of anything, but the pure awareness of, well, it's not, we can't even say, the awareness I am, that's the simplest way to put it. That is, pure awareness is not aware of anything other than itself. And itself obviously isn't an object of awareness. So what Bhagavan is saying in these verses, 10, 11, 12, and 13, these are very, very deep ideas, but also very important ideas. Ideas with great practical implication, because so long as we're aware of anything other than ourselves, we who are aware of that are ego. So in order to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we need to cease rising as ego. That means we need to cease being aware of other things. This is why, for example, in the third paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, um, unless the perception of the world ceases, uh, the, the, the seeing of oneself, in other words, self-knowledge, will not arise. Why? Because so long as we're aware of other things, so long as we're aware of the appearance of the world, for example, we who are aware of that are ego. And ego is always aware of itself as I am this body. That is ignorance. So the, the, that which it knows anything other than itself is ignorance. That which knows itself alone, that alone is the real knowledge. So in order to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to be, uh, we, 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 we need to cease being aware of any other thing. In other words, we need to attend to ourselves so keenly, but we withdraw our attention from all other things and are aware of ourselves alone. As soon as we're aware of ourselves alone, we are aware of ourselves as we actually are. Ego is thereby destroyed because ego is a false awareness of ourselves, awareness of ourselves as I am this body. So if we if we 
think deeply about these verses and understand the practical implication of them, they are very, very important. What Bhagavan is teaching us here, it may sound like rather abstract philosophy, saying that uh, awareness of multiplicity is ignorance and that ignorance is unreal, but that ignorance doesn't exist apart from oneself who is real. Uh, that may, on the surface, it may seem like rather abstract philosophy, but if we think about it and try to understand why Bhagavan is emphasizing this, what is the practical implication of this, then it becomes very clear that what Bhagavan is teaching us is all Bhagavan's teachings, the hallmark of Bhagavan's teachings, if they are practical, all his teachings have have practical implication and we cannot be said to have understood his teachings correctly until we understand the practical implications. So now we have risen as ego and we are consequently aware of other things. So this awareness of other things is ignorance and this ignorance is unreal. But does this ignorance exist independent of ourselves? No. Without the basic awareness, without being aware, you couldn't be aware of anything. As I said, we can, be, we can be aware without being aware of anything, but we cannot be aware of anything without being aware. So being aware is our real nature. Uh, being aware means being, just being aware, not being aware of anything. The uh, awareness of things is a superimposition, just like the, the snake is superimposed on, the appearance of a snake is superimposed on a rope, or the, the appearance of a ring is superimposed on gold, or the appearance of a pot is superimposed on clay, what is real is the underlying substance, not the outward form, not what is superimposed upon it, because what is superimposed is not real. The form of the pot is not real. It, the clay wasn't a pot before it was made into a pot. It ceases to be a pot after it's broken, but it remains clay all along, likewise with ornaments. The, the, the gold is gold, whether it's made into a ring or a bangle or a bracelet or something. Of course, gold cannot remain without having some form. That's why the snake rope analogy is also important to consider, because the rope is a rope. Whether it appears as a snake or not, it is always a rope. It doesn't actually undergo any change. So all knowledge of multiplicity is a mere superimposition, an adhyasa. It is something that is superimposed upon the underlying reality. The underlying reality is the vastu or poddle, that is the substance. Uh, illustrated by the gold or the, um, or the uh, rope or the uh, clay. Everything else is just a superimposition. And in whose view does the, um, does the uh, rope appear to be a snake? Only in the view of ego. In whose view is the gold seen as, an all, as, a, as a ring or a bangle or a tiara or a necklace or whatever? It's only in the view of ego. So the defect the defect lies not in what is seen, but in the seer. It is we who are seeing things wrongly. What actually exists is only ourself. If we see ourself alone, that is true knowledge, that is pure awareness. If we see anything other than ourself, what are we seeing as that? We are seeing ourselves as those other things. That is ignorance. So this is the message of this verse. 
we understand it clearly, it's it's extremely important principle to understand Advaita properly, and it's also has is extremely significant from a practical point of view because what is it we are trying to attend to? What is it we are trying to investigate? When we are practicing Atmavichara, we are trying to investigate our Self alone. In other words, our attention needs to be on our Self alone, not on anything other than ourselves, not on any object. And the more, the deeper we go in this practice, in other words, the more we focus our attention on ourselves, the more other things we draw into the background. And when we turn the full 180 degrees, so to speak, away from other things, back towards ourselves, we cease to be aware of anything else, and we're aware of ourself alone. That is the state of pure awareness. That is the annihilation of ego. The false awareness, I am this body. Sorry, that was rather a long explanation, but it's. Um, I, I hope what I've said is useful. So if anyone has any questions about this, um, please feel free to ask. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you, Michael. So, um, like, uh, I have a question here. Is it possible to be aware of other things, transact in the world, while our focus is on our fundamental awareness? You're talking about the, the practice, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Because in the state of attainment, there is no world. Um, so it's only during the state of practice that this, um, this question can arise. Yes. Because what when you see um, when you see a a ring, you can either be admiring. Oh, it's such a beautiful what beautiful workmanship here. So so elaborate or necklace, for example. It may be very very fine uh, gold goldsmithship. They they may have very fine intricate patterns they may have done. It may be a very fine work. If your attention is on the form, on the beauty of the form, you're overlooking the underlying substance. But you can look at the same thing and just see the substance. You can ignore the form and just recognize, oh, this is gold. So likewise in our experience, whether we are, our attention is on other things or not, the one thing we are always aware of is ourself. So we have a choice. Do we attend to the other things or do we attend to ourselves? If we attend to ourselves, everything else will take care, will, will happen as it's meant to happen because everything else is happening in accordance with, with prarabdha. So it is what has been already preordained. So things will happen in that that is whatever work this body or mind are destined to do they will be made to do by god so that we need not be concerned about so it's a matter of what we're interested in if we're very interested in our work in the um in the outcome of our work and everything our attention will be on that if we're very interested in knowing who am i our attention will be going inwards and the outward life will be going on as as it is meant to. Bhagavan makes this very clear, for example, in, um, in, um, in the 13th paragraph of Nana. He, he begins this paragraph by defining what is, um, what is self-surrender. Um, he says, 
Anma chintane tabira, bera chintane kalamba vidaku, satrum idum kodamal, apmanishta paranai iripade, tane isunuku alipadam. What that means is um, being as apmanishta paran. Apmanishta paran means one who is firmly fixed as oneself. How to be firmly fixed as ourself is what he implies in the. Um, in the earlier part of the sentence, Anma chintane tavira, vera chintane kalamavitku satram idam kadamal. That means giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought except apma chintana. Apma chintana literally means thought of oneself, but it implies self attentiveness. In other words, being so keenly self attentive that we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thought. How do we not give room to rising about any other thought by being self-attentive? Because no thought can rise without our awareness of it. So if I, if we do not attend to any thought, it, it cannot rise. So to the, the implication is we need to be so keenly self-attentive, but we cease to be aware of anything else. That is being Atmanishta Paran, and that is that is that alone is giving oneself to God. So, in other words, if we want to surrender ourselves wholly to God, we need to attend to ourselves so keenly, but we give no room to the rising of any other thought. So, at this point, anyone can object. But I've got so many responsibilities. I've got a I've got um, I've got a wife or husband, I've got elderly parents, I've got children, I've got a job, I've got responsibilities, I've got this or that. How, how can I go through life without thinking of anything? According to Bhagavan, we don't have to think of anything because everything is being taken care of by God. So in the next sentence he says, even though one he says, um peril evelo barate patalum. That means, um, uh, even though one places whatever amount of burden, or however much burden, upon God, that entire amount he will bear. The implication in this context is, even the burden of thinking for us, we can leave that burden to God. He will take care of everything. So, if he wants us to... Um, to earn to support our wife or our husband and our children, our parents and others, he will you he will he will make our mind, speech, and body do whatever actions are necessary. So the the thought, word, and deed, if we hand over the, the three instruments of action, namely mind, speech, and body, if we hand them over to God by clinging to self-attentiveness, he will use those instruments to do whatever needs to be done. So uh, then, in the next sentence, he says, um, "Sakala kariyangaleyum oru parameshwara shakti nadati kol kiripadial namum adaku adangiya ramal ipadi seyavendum apadi seyavendum indru sada chintipadu ein." What that means is, since one Parameshwara Shakti, Parameshwara Shakti means, um, 
Parama means supreme, or uh, Ishwara means God, or it also means ruling, because God is the ruler of the universe, so he's called Ishwara. So uh, the Parameshwara Shakti can mean the supreme ruling power or the power of God. It, it, it amounts to the same. It's, it can, we can interpret it either way. Since that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, Karyas means whatever needs or ought to be done or to happen. So everything that needs to happen, everything that ought to happen, he is making them happen. Everything that our mind, speech, or body need to do or ought to do, he makes them do. So when such is the case, instead of we also yielding to it, why to be perpetually thinking, it is necessary to do like this, it is necessary to do like that. That is, Bhagavan is giving us an assurance here. If we focus all our interest, all our effort, all our attention on attending to ourselves, he will take care of well, that is surrendering ourselves to him. Having surrendered to him, he will take care of everything else. Even if we don't surrender to him, he's still making he's still taking care of everything. He's still driving all carriers. All our efforts to do things, um thinking what we are doing by our strength is just ignorance. Everything is being done by him. It is, it's because of our ignorance that we think, I need to work, I must do. That, who is it, what are, what are the instruments of action? It is mind, speech, and body. Let the mind, speech, and body do whatever God wants them to do. He will make them do. The mistake we make is we identify ourselves with this mind, speech, and body. So we say, I am thinking, I am speaking, I am, uh, I am doing, I am working, I am earning money, I am, I am rich because I've worked hard for it. All this is because of a false identification of ourselves with the five sheaves, uh, the body, uh, prana, the life, uh, mind, intellect, and will. Because we identify ourselves with these things, we say, I am doing, I am I am talking, I am uh, thinking. It, that is because of our wrong identification. The aim of, the, of surrender, the aim of vichara, is to give up this wrong identification by holding on to our own being, holding on to what we actually are, which is just I am, uh, we are thereby separated from these things. These things, these instruments of action will be will go on doing whatever they're destined to do. He, God will take care of that. So we need not be concerned about anything. Our sole duty is to attend to ourselves. And then he Bhagavan concludes this paragraph by uh, a very beautiful analogy, the analogy of a passenger traveling on the train. What he says is. Though we know that the train is going, bearing all the burdens, why should we who go traveling in it, instead of remaining happily, leaving our small luggage placed on it, placed on the train, suffer bearing that luggage on our head? So if you're traveling on a train, whether you carry your luggage on your head or you put it on the luggage rack, the train is going to carry it to its destination. If you put it on the luggage rack, you can be you can travel comfortably and happily without any botheration. If you insist on carrying your luggage on your head, you're going to suffer. Likewise, 
thinking that we need to do anything is uh, is carrying our burden on our head. Everything is being taken care of by God. The train is carrying all the burden. So we can happily leave the whole burden to him. Our only duty is to be so keenly self-attentive that we do not give uh, even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than ourselves. Does that adequately answer that question? Yes. No. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I just wanted to um, share something that I've been doing in my practice, see if I'm kind of tracking what we're talking about here. Yeah. So in my work, I, I talk with a lot of people and what I've been practicing is one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. And so what I've been practicing is when I will, I'll notice that I'm attending very keen, very keenly to their words. And there's a sort of a, you know, wanting to make, make something happen or looking for opportunities or whatever. And I will, I will consciously then redirect attention to self just to, to move it here internally. And then, and there will be a sort of that, just sort of a piece. And I'm, I'm, the words are just sort of washing over me. It'd be hard to say I'm even listening, but I'm just more, um, it's just kind of, they're just flowing. And then, and it will be, a, um, there will be sometimes responses from me from that place or whatever. The conversation doesn't stop, but then I'll notice there's a little fear. I would imagine ego is coming in to say, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm not tracking. I'm not, you know, I'm not tracking what's going on, you know? And so then the, the attention will go right yeah, back. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Where's my luggage? My luggage may exactly. not be coming in, put it back on my head. That's yeah. it. That's it. <laughs> and so I just noticed that that happens. In fact, I was even playing with it while you were talking. Yeah, I would, yeah. you know, I would do the same yeah. thing. And so I, I think that, that in, you know, in terms of my mm. practice, I think it's just to keep, keep practicing that movement. Yeah. Yeah. Bhagavan's teachings are incredibly practical. Yes, yes. It's all about practice. And if we have, if we trust what Bhagavan says, if we, if we are firmly convinced that everything else is happening as it's meant to happen, as Bhagavan said in a note he wrote to his mother, what is not to happen will what sorry what is never to happen will not happen however much effort is made what is to happen will not stop however much obstacle is made what is going to happen is going to happen what is not going to happen is not going to happen our making effort to try and experience something or trying to avoid experience something is futile because what has to be undergone it has to be undergone and you cannot experience anything that you're not destined to experience and in order to experience certain things for example supposing you're you you're, you've got a job and you've got uh, you 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 you've, you've got to do that job in order to earn money to support your family if you are destined to, to do, I mean, if, if it's your destiny to support your family, your mind, speech and body will be made to do whatever actions are necessary to do that job perfectly. You, the, the mistake we make is we identify ourselves, oh, I am, I am this person, I, therefore I have to do this, I have responsibility, this is my wife, my husband, my children, my parents, my job, my boss, my uh, the, 
people under me. I have responsibility for all these things. It's this the root problem is ego, this false identification. The aim of Bhagavan's teachings is to give up this false identification. So if we continue thinking, I have to do, that is only reinforcing ego. Because it's reinforcing the wrong identification. Whatever the mind, speech, and body have to do, that is God's lookout. He will make them do. Mm, he so will unfailingly make them do. Mm -hmm. So relaxing, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it way. is. But the trouble is, this ego doesn't let go easily. <laughs> we, we hear these words, we think it's very nice. I, I'm speaking these words, but am I living up to this? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to, of course, but failing again and again and again, because this is just the nature of ego. The ego will constantly be trying to, um, to grasp things other than itself. Ego is unwilling to let go. But this, this path of self-investigation and self-surrender, it's all about letting go. And how do we let go? Only by holding on to ourself. If you hold on to what is real, what is unreal will automatically drop off. You're, let, you're no longer holding it. Mm. So the key is holding on to ourself, being self-attentive. Thank you. Right. So, Michael, um, Sa uh, Swami Sadhuam says, you know, um, throughout our life, we always have a choice, you know, to to attend to ourselves or or to attend, uh, you know. Or Jagannath, as he calls it, world attention. Yes. So that is every moment in our life that choice is there. Right. Um, sorry, um, I'm, I'll just finish the question. And um, so there is, when that being the case, um, one of the devotees is, uh, has posted a comment. It seems to me that that we awareness are choiceless. Just to choose it, there is only one. You know, but basically saying that this life we live in is in fact choiceless. Um, so how would you address that concern? Ego is not choiceless. Ego is the result of a choice. We choose to cling to other things. We choose to cling to this person as I am this person, I am this body. That's our choice. Choicelessness and ego are, are incompatible. If you want to be choiceless, you need to choose to give up ego. So long as you rise as ego, you are making a, it's a result of our choice. We choose to rise as ego. We choose to say, I am this person. I am Michael. I am Kumar. I am whoever. It's our choice. So the, the pure awareness is choiceless because it has no options. It's, it is one only without a second. So it, there's no choice for it. But so long as we rise as ego, we have a choice. We can attend to this or to this or to this or to ourselves. <clears throat> so to, to imagine that we are choiceless is, a, is, a, is false. So long as we are, our, our real nature is choiceless, but as ego, we are constantly, we have risen as ego because we've chosen to rise as ego. We are standing as ego because we continue to choose to stand as ego. If we want to surrender ourselves, we must choose to surrender ourselves by clinging to our own reality, our own being. Is that a satisfactory answer? I don't, I don't know who asked the question. 
absolutely satisfactory. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, so there's another question. Will the ignorance that I am this body die before the actual death of the body? Um, how to kill the ego if ego is part of the body or jiva itself? Ego is not part of the body. Ego is the, the, the root that gives rise to the appearance of body and world. It's only in the view of ego that the body seems to exist, that the world seems to exist. So <clears throat> ego cannot rise without projecting and taking a body to be I. But the root cause is ego, not the body. The body is the effect. Ego is the cause. Have I answered that question? I can't remember what the question was, but I answered part yeah. of it. I so I'll re re repeat the question. Will the ignorance that I am this body die before the actual death of the body? Then the next uh, question is how to kill the ego if ego is part of the body or jiva itself? Right. Well, ego is not part of the body. The, the, the body is, is a, a product. As soon as we rise as ego, we project a body and take it to be ourself. Um, so ego is the root. Um, regarding, uh, we, we don't have to wait for the death of the body in order to kill the ego, because ego is just a false identification. I am this body. So we can if we have sufficient love to know ourselves and to be ourselves as we actually are, we can annihilate ego here and now. We don't have to wait for the death of a body. If we wait for the death of a body, the body will die, but ego won't die. That, that is, ego needs to, to give up its attachment, its identification with the body here and now, not to wait for death. We wait for death. Uh, sometimes, Grace works in a way, but it, the actual annihilation of ego is it's a very favorable, the, the death of the body is a very favorable opportunity because we are being forcibly separated from the body. So in the case of many, uh, many of us, that, uh, that annihilation of ego may occur at the time of death, not because of death of the body, but because because we are being forcibly separated from the body, we have a choice there, either to cling to our own reality or to allow the mind to go outwards. If we allow the mind to go outwards, the body will die and the ego will remain and continue having one life after another, one dream after another, that is. But since we are being forcibly separated from ego, for a, someone who has been practicing this self-attentiveness throughout their life, that is a very favorable moment to that one final to turn the full, final full 180 degrees so that opportunity is well that opportunity is there at every moment in our life it is possibly um the opportunity presents itself even more clearly at the moment of death we can say but we have to choose to take that opportunity we have to be willing to surrender ourselves completely that is investigating ourselves entails letting go of everything else. In other words, investigating ourselves is the complete surrender of ourself and of everything else. So, but, so until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely forever, 
to cease ever again rising as ego and knowing any multiplicity until we are willing to, 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 to surrender ourselves, we cannot succeed in this self-investigation. That is why Bhagavan says in that first sentence of the 13th paragraph, what is giving ourselves to God? It's clinging so, to self-attentiveness so firmly, but we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thought. In other words, we, we attend to ourselves so keenly, we don't allow our attention to, to drift away from ourselves towards anything else. That alone is truly surrendering ourselves to God. Um, so there, there is a question. Um, what about the definition of ego being included in the five sheets? Ego is that which identifies all the five sheets as I. Ego is not part of the five sheets. The five sheets are what Bhagavan collectively refers to as body. Ego is the is that adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body. In other words, that which is aware of itself as I am this body, that is ego. But five sheaths are all jada. Ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this, uh, this body consisting of five sheaths. So ego is, ego cannot rise or stand without projecting and grasping five sheaths as I, but it is always distinct from those five sheaths. The five sheaths are objects known by us. This body is very obviously an object known by us. The prana, the, 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 the breathing and the heartbeat and the respiration, all the, I mean, all these different uh, physiological processes that make up the prana, these are objects known by us. The mind, in the sense of all the thoughts, perceptions, memories, uh, feelings, emotions, and so on. These are all objects known by us. The workings of the intellect it is known by us. It's an object known by us. The will, which the, the subtlest of the five sheets, the Anandamaya Kosha, which consists of vasanas, those vasanas are inclinations. They are known by us. They're objects known by us. So we are the subject. Everything else is the object. This is what is called Drictrisya Viveka. We need to, the first thing we need to do is to dis, clearly distinguish ourselves as the knower, independent from all the things that are known. So all these five sheaths are things known by us. We are the knower of them. That is, we as ego are the knower of them. So we need to investigate the, not anything that is known, but the knower. In other words, we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves. When we turn our attention back towards ourselves, Ego subsides, in other words, the knower subsides, and what then remains is pure awareness, without any knower of anything other than itself. Thank you, Michael. Mm. That answers the question. Right. Um, I don't see any other questions. Uh, let me see here. There may be one just came up. Uh, uh, thank you, Michael. That will conclude today's session. Okay, right. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I'm all right.